Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitro-retinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 179, I'm joined by Dr. Dante Piramici of California Retina Consultants to discuss multiple topics, including post-operative activity restrictions and virtual reality applications in retinal surgery. A list of financial disclosures will be attached in the episode description. Also, remember you can now claim CME credits via the AO website by simply clicking on the link in the episode description. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now privileged to be joined uh, today on Father's Day by Dr. Dante Piramici. Dr. Piramici is currently partner at California Retina Consultants based in Santa Barbara, California, and he's also um, director of the California Retina Research Foundation. Uh, Dante, thank you so much for joining us. Jay, it's my pleasure. We ask all our new guests the same question, and uh, especially I think our, our listeners earlier in their careers are interested to hear where people came from. So why did you decide to become an ophthalmologist and then a retina specialist? Well, I was a medical student at Johns Hopkins uh, University, and I was uh, always interested in neuroscience. And I came across two people, um, Patty Vining and John Freeman. They were both actually pediatric neurologists. And they, at the time, were working with Ben Carson, who we know now works for President Trump. And they were doing a variety of things, including the separation of the twins. They were actually kind of the people really caring for the twins afterwards and things. And they also did some work on, you know, the ketogenic diet, actually, using it for seizures. So these are very nice, interesting people. And I sort of saw myself as going into neurology or neurosurgery. And they actually recommended I spend some time with Neil Miller. He was at the Wilmer Eye Institute. And I really didn't have much exposure to ophthalmology at that point, really was never on my radar. And so I went and talked to Neil Miller and he said, great, I'm happy to work with you, but I want you to do a one month rotation in just general ophthalmology and, and find a mentor. So uh, that's where I came across Neil and Susan Bressler. And Susan took me under her wing and, and, uh, and, and, and I did a project with her. And then I spent time working with Neil Miller. And I sort of realized that there was a lot going on in ophthalmology, a lot more than I'd been exposed to just as a medical student. And I love the technology. And, it was in, and retina, essentially, you are a neuroscientist. You're a, just an end-organ neuroscientist, a sensory-organ neuroscientist. So, and I looked around and saw what the neurosurgeons were doing. And at the time, this is back in the 80s, I mean, they were taking brain tumors out. That was sort of it. And in ophthalmology, it seemed like they were doing much cooler surgery. Vitrectomy surgery was not that old at the time. And they were starting to close macular holes and things. So to me, it was very interesting, the the whole science, but then the clinical aspect of taking care of the patient. So I guess in in a short nutshell, that's kind of how I came to ophthalmology. And of course, being at Hopkins, you had the Wilmer Eye Institute, and there were so many great people there, um, in addition to the Bresslers, Andy Shackett, and Gene Dewan and Julia Haller and Peter Campuchero. These are people who I came across. And I suspect in, in life you end up finding people who you think you would like to emulate in a way, and uh, you like what they do, and you like the kind of patients they take care of, and, and you sort of see the appreciation 
that they get out of their job and the appreciation that the patients got out of the work that they did. And so I was sold at that point. Yeah, you know, and, and then you, you go on with your career, and you were actually faculty. Um, you know, it was you trained there, you had been a student there, and you were faculty at Hopkins uh, before moving on to Yale. Um, talk a little bit about you know that sort of transition. I think it's I can speak from a similar end. I'm, right now, I'm faculty at the same place I trained and uh, early in my career. But you know, you had eventually had to make a choice to transition, and you did out here to the west uh, to West Coast, and so. Uh, talk about first of all just the transition going from maybe academic medicine to private practice. What kind of motivated you, uh, and maybe why even you made the first transition to Yale? Yeah, I was when I finished my fellowship. Um, I came back to Hopkins because they, they have a chief. They had a chief resident year. They still do, or you're essentially a sort of a junior faculty member. You you train the residents. You run the residency program. You do the vitreoretinal surgery that is uh, accumulated from the residence practices, and you, uh, you know, essentially do cataract surgery with the residents. So it was a lot of fun. It's like a great year. Um, I didn't realize the liability that you take on, and you don't get paid much. Mm-hmm. So it's great for the university too, because they have somebody basically twenty four seven to deal right. with the residents and all the emergencies. And and I really like trauma. Actually, eye trauma was the thing that I that sort of pushed me to retina in the end. I just I figured if I wanted to take care of these traumatic, these really injured eyes, that I'd have to know vitreoretinal surgery and things. So I actually enjoyed it. We did, you know, as you do in Miami, we do we did lots of open globe injuries and foreign bodies and all these things. And so it was a great year. It's just kind of a fun year. You're working with the residents, and you you know you're basically living in the hospital all the time. Uh, for a year, it was good. I don't know that I could do it for a lot longer. But after that, I sort of felt that I wanted to stay in academics. Academics meaning in a you know an academic or university setting because one of the things about academics is I really think you can do academics in private practice as well. It's sort of be academics being teaching and doing research and writing papers and things like that. You can do that in retina in private practice. So I you know I sort of differentiate the two sort of academics in an institutional setting versus academics in a private practice setting and. Um, but anyhow, there an opportunity came up at Yale. Bruce Shields had just become the new chairman, and I thought it would be kind of a neat to be there, uh, kind of at the ground level. And after a year, I got this collect phone call, and I'm not kidding you, from Mort Goldberg called me collect. And I remember getting out of the shower. My wife says, Dr. Goldberg's on the phone collect. And, and he'll deny it if you ask him, but he did call me collect from somewhere and asked me if I wanted to come back to Wilmer. You know, things really hadn't been materializing at Yale, so you know, I figured if I really wanted to do a research career, that I'd be better off back at Wilmer. So I went back to Wilmer for a few years, and uh, and at some point, and I guess this happens along the way. So you you know, you you're a junior faculty, and then you sort of start going up the ranks. And I was very busy clinically, uh, and um, it sort of came down to kind of a financial decision at the end of the day. I mean, um, my overhead when I was a clinician at Wilmer, and I know things are a lot better there now, but it was probably around 90%. So for every dollar I brought in, I was giving back 90% to the university. And uh, Bob Avery, who had been my chief resident, said, you know, just use us as a, a, a bargaining chip. And uh, so I came out to California and saw the practice that he had developed. And it was really, he really wanted to get research going. And he had a nice clinical practice at multiple offices. It was just him and Man Nasser at the time, and I figured, yeah, my wife and I saw California. We really hadn't 
spend time here. And we said, you know, this might be fun to do for a while. And, and actually, I haven't looked back. I mean, um, I think that I, I'm really more of a clinical researcher. So being in a private practice affords us the ability to do the trials we want to do uh, and uh, to recruit the patients. And so we've been able to build a pretty strong clinical research program here over the years. And, and that's been nice, too. And uh, so that's kind of the reason I changed. I think there are, I certainly do miss certain aspects of being at Hopkins or at Yale. I, I miss teaching the medical students. I miss interacting with more with the residents and things. We have had some fellows uh, in our in our practice, and, and it really is a relationship that you build with somebody that goes throughout your life, and I, and I do miss that. I think at the end of the day, you are thankful for all the patients that you've been able to help, and I think that you're thankful for the people that you were able to teach uh, along the way. The papers and the accolades and all this other stuff probably mean very little um, uh, as far as your career goes. So I think that it sort of started to be a fin- for a financial reason, but then I think that at the end of the day, uh, it really was an opportunity to to build something and to have control over it. And there was a, I had an opportunity to come back to Wilmer at some point, but by that point, the autonomy that I have, I mean, believe me, the autonomy comes with a lot of extra work. You got to run the business side of the practice. You got to deal more with the staff and the issues that arise from that and all these billing issues and things. So. There are a number of headaches, but there is a lot of autonomy that you have in your own practice. And um, and I think that if you look at the clinical research that's been done over the last, certainly the last decade, most of it, probably 70% of it, are patients that are recruited out of private practice, academic practices in this country. So I think it's been a, a model that works in retina. Yeah, that, that's great. You know, And I want to ask you a little bit about um, the first time I saw you speak, which was uh, at Vail as a fellow a few years ago. But before that, since we have so many younger listeners, we may have to explain what a collect phone call is because I, I know what a collect <laughs> phone call is and you know what a collect phone call is. So briefly, you want to tell them what a collect phone call is? That's that's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't even know if people call on the phone hardly anymore. But uh, a collect phone call is essentially when you, you're probably at a pay phone or, or something and you, you call somebody, but you don't have the money for it. So that the person who receives the call has to accept the charges on the call. And that was me in this case. Mark Goldberg's trying to convince me to come back to Hopkins, but he's calling me collect. I should have known at that point that he was going to always out-negotiate me in any sort of salary <laughs> negotiation. And so I probably should have stopped there. And uh, But uh, it, but I, I love being at Hopkins at the end of the day. I, lo- I think it's a wonderful institution. I loved all the places. I was at Emory as a fellow, worked with Paul Sterberg and and the folks there, and, and and at Yale too. So, you know, I don't have an, any anything ill to say about um, university-based academic practice. I think it's it's great, and I think that it really is the engine, particularly for basic science and translational medicine mm-hmm. in our field. And uh, so, I, there are lots of things about it I miss. There are some things about it I don't miss. And uh, but at the end of the day, I think this was turned out to be a good fit for me. And if you're a listener in the cell phone era and you're like, what's a pay phone? That's what you would use if you didn't have your phone. There'd be little phones around that you could pick up and put a quarter in and uh, make a call. Well, um, you know, your, your talk in 2000, this was back in 2016 uh, when I was a second year fellow. I remember finding it really fascinating where you, you kind of talked about post-operative positioning and activity restrictions, where 
kind of people's recommendations come from, the variability, and what science actually exists. And it's really kind of interesting to think about why, you know, some of us say, you know, you had a retinal detachment surgery, you can't do X for two weeks or for four weeks or for one week. And so when you put together that talk and kind of researched, what are kind of the big takeaways? So if someone has a retinal surgery, how, what are kind of the rules we should use to determine activity and then uh, positioning uh, instructions? Yeah, I'm always I'm always amazed that there are these things that get passed on from year after year and are taught these certain quote and I put in parentheses or quotations truths and um, but if you if you look at some of these truths and you actually go back and try to look through the literature and sort of find where did they get this from I mean like why is it that somebody can't go for a jog say a week after a retinal detachment repair or why is it that someone can't you know lift weights and 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 what what's the evidence for that and so i was curious to know where these recommendations were coming from and also based on the fact when i moved to california there's a whole bunch of people out here who are just crazy fanatics about exercise i mean mm-hmm. these are people that you can't you can't keep them down and and they're asking me well doc well, how come i can't do this or why can't i go hiking tomorrow or why can't i do this that and the other so it really kind of forced me to try to look at the literature and then look at what science was actually behind it, supporting this. And it's amazing, too. I don't, it's probably the same for most people who are in practice with a number of other retina specialists. When you see some of these patients, you see, wow, he makes them keep the head down for three weeks or three days or a week. So there's a lot of variability and even how we fix macular holes and how how long people position. So you know, I sort of, as I checked through the literature, there's actually very little, there's very little support for this. I mean, the, the only clinical trial that I could find was the study that Jerry Bovino, one of the originators of the, uh, it was the Vitreous Society and then the American Society of Retinal Specialists had done, which was like a randomized trial where he looked after retinal detachment repair with a scleral buckle, uh, you know, people that had no restrictions afterwards and then a group that had, you know, very uh, sort of strict restrictions as far as physical activity and found no difference in visual acuity or redetachment rates or anything. So it kind of got me wondering, you know, what we should be, what we should, what should we be recommending to our patients? And, uh, and I looked through the literature and I think that we're probably being a little harsh many times in some of the restrictions. At that same meeting, interestingly, one of our colleagues from England told me a story about a 85-year-old patient he had taken care of who had a retinal detachment, and uh, they fixed the detachment. And and in England, I guess the nurses sort of take care of the patients as well over an extended period of time. And, of course, they told him right after the detachment he wasn't supposed to have sexual relations. And uh, he was kind of a shy guy, and so it went on for about, you know, his follow-up continued. He did well. The retina remained attached. And it was at his one-year evaluation that, you know, he sort of meekly at this point that nurses told him that it's time that he's discharged from the retina clinic. He then asked, is it okay that I have sex now at this point? So, you know, some of the patients aren't going to ask these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it comes to all kinds of activities, and so this kind of just got me thinking that these patients sometimes were probably putting him in a situation that, you know, is, is rather, rather harsh as far as follow-up goes. And what, so what, what did you learn and what do you recommend for your patients, right? So if you have a patient, for example, with a detachment um, yeah. and, you, and you laser a break, for example, um, how long does 
the literature and science suggest we need to keep that break supported before it's sealed? And, and then how long do you recommend your patients to do something to maybe catch outliers? Yeah. I mean, the, the, if you look at there, there's some, actually some nice sort of uh, basic, basic science work done looking at laser scars after and the, the strength of a laser scar. It's surprising that actually within almost 24 hours, the, the area is more adhesive than the, than an adjacent area uh, of the retina. So, you know, laser scars actually set in quite rapidly. Cryotherapy is a little bit different. It may be due to the swelling of all the tissues and things. And I think that if a patient has cryotherapy, they probably should take it easy for a little bit longer. What I generally recommend, say it's a retinal attachment, I've lasered the retinal breaks, a primary vid, I've put an air or gas bubble inside the eye. I generally will recommend to that patient that they they can walk, you know, the day after the day of the surgery, the day after the surgery. I think it's okay if they want to, you know, sit on a stationary bike. Actually, in some respects, it's good. They'll keep their head down. They can ride a stationary bike. And I don't think it matters if they get their heart rate up a little bit either. I try to keep people from any jarring or jolting activity really probably for the first 72 hours or so. I think it's better just because you want people to be positioning anyhow and and staying in a position. I think it's probably safe to do that for a few days and even up to a week. I I did have a patient uh, when I was at Yale who actually did have a bilateral um, shotgun injury, perforating injuries, both eyes, and uh, he had had surgery on both eyes and and was positioning afterwards, and he was trying so hard. He was so fearful of losing his vision. He was positioning so hard that he that he got a, a deep vein thrombosis oh, and wow. almost uh, died from that. Luckily, it was taken care of, but it got me thinking that some of these patients may try to be ultra great with the positioning. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think it is important that people do get up and they ambulate, and if they want to do some exercise, usually within a week or two. I don't have people out doing dangerous things like playing tennis or soccer or something like that. I usually tell people to refrain from riding a bicycle for maybe three or four weeks, mostly because I'm worried that some other trauma might uh, affect them. They may not be able to see well. uh, They may Mm -hmm. just not be themselves. So uh, I think that being safe is one thing. But I really do think that you're probably fairly safe to get back to more regular activity, hiking or walking, treadmill, even jogging a little bit on a treadmill within a week or two after the surgery, and certainly a stationary bicycle. So, I, you know, here in California and a lot of places around the country, frankly, people do want to get back to their regular lives. And the more you have them just sitting, looking at their feet, I think that it becomes a, a pretty harsh uh, rehabilitation process following retina surgery. And I don't think it has to be that harsh in most cases because I think it's, it's going to work out just fine. Yeah, it's interesting. You you referenced that one of the reasons these quote unquote truths get passed down is just maybe you learn a rule and you keep doing it. I also think that, um, and this is probably true of all physicians, but just speaking about retina doctors, we're dealing with human bodies and we do the very best we can, for example, with the retinal detachment to prevent a problem. Um, And thankfully, most of the time we're successful. But when something goes wrong, I think we're very, very subject to self-questioning as we should be, but also to anecdotal bias where, you know, something happens and we're like, well, you know, in your head, you're like, why did this happen? And and sometimes there's a reason for things happening. And sometimes it just happens. You know, sometimes we just, we can do the very best things and things just don't go the way we planned. And I think that somehow 
positioning, like many other rules, we all probably have these little idiosyncrasies besides our instructions, but it's almost treating ourselves more than the patient sometimes, giving us a sense that we, we're in control of this situation. And while we're exerting a lot of control with the medicine, the technologies, and the surgeries we have today, we're still not 100% control. And I think that unconsciously probably makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. That that we we And so we come up with these things that sometimes they make sense, but sometimes they don't. But they make us feel better when we go to sleep at night. Well, we're like, well, I did this and this, which will prevent a problem. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, surgery is, is there's plenty of examples of things. Like if you do one thing and it doesn't work out, then you'll never do that right. maneuver again. I mean... So basic human nature, we are superstitious creatures by nature. Just watch a baseball player go up to hit a ball. I mean, the kind of things that they do with the bat and how they put their feet in and out of the box. I mean, we're just superstitious. And if something works out, we do the same thing again. If it doesn't work out, we never do that again, even though that may not have been the problem. I think that's one of the tricky things with surgery is that we just don't. I mean, there's so many manipulations that we do during a procedure that we, if it doesn't work out, we're in our minds, it's, we we're thinking about that one thing that we did that maybe we thought might be related to this. We never do that again. And so you're exactly right. It's a, it's one of these biases that we carry on. And, and if you get a bad outcome, you end up never, never doing that again. Or if you get a good outcome, you continue to do it till something bad happens and you never do it again <laughs> as well. So it's our superstitious primate nature coming out. Well, one of the things you spoke about at this year's Vail meeting was improving kind of the surgical techniques we have. You talked a little bit about the work you've done uh, in the field of uh, virtual reality or VR visualization. Um, do you want to tell, you know, I know a lot of this stuff is still getting off the ground, but I think it's maybe closer to a reality than people think. So talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of advantages this sort of technology will offer and, and how soon and when what you see this doing in terms of impacting our ability to operate and take care of patients. I think virtual reality actually, you know, has been around certainly for a while. I mean, our colleagues in the aeronautical industry, the pilots and things have been using virtual reality to train. And you actually probably can't become a commercial pilot unless you're first cleared on VR training in a simulator. And we do very similar important things. And and if you think about how training has gone over the years, it's it's sort of, you know, by the seat of the pants. I mean, you, you either you go to lectures, you have mentorship, you might have an animal lab where you work with cadaver eyes. It's not very standardized. And I think that VR offers us a lot of opportunity in training. And I know that it, after my time, but more recently that simulators are being used in residency training, these IC simulators. And I think most residency programs in the United States now have one of these. And and there is data, actually fairly good clinical data, to suggest it makes a difference at reducing the rates of complications for new surgeons, new cataract surgeons. And so um, I think it holds a lot of promise. I mean, there are a couple, there are a couple of things that are unique about VR. And I think now that the technology makes it realistic, we, we can not only have a visually realistic scenario that we look in, but using haptic feedback, you actually can get resistance. There are realistic-like resistances so that you, you really do get a full sensory experience that's very similar that you would in a vitro-retinal surgery case or a cataract case. So it, it allows us an opportunity to, to do some things. One is you can practice a certain step of the procedure like a capsulorexis over and over again. 
you can, the machine can be uh, uh, calibrated so that you can have easy setting or hard settings. Uh, in addition, it can, can collect quantitative information on the surgeon. So it'll know, did you make the capsular rexus big enough? Did you pull it out too much? Did you put too much tension on it? So there's a lot of data that we can collect, and, and it can give you instant feedback as well. Uh, you, can, you can develop games where you can learn to do vitreoretinal surgery, learn just to touch little objects in the vitreous and turn them colors and things. So you can do a lot of really neat things that I think can enhance training. Um, and really the sky's the limit with this. What, what I got interested in it was is that there's a number of new surgical procedures coming out. One of them is the port delivery system mm-hmm. uh, from Genentech uh, for ranibizumab. And the challenge for them is that they have a delivery system that seems to work. Um, it's not particularly difficult to put in the port delivery system, but there are some steps or parts of the procedure that you really do want to get correct because if you don't, you're going to end up with a complication such as a vitreous hemorrhage or retraction or erosion of the implant. So I think it's very important that if you want a a device to be successful, that one of the key parts of this is going to be having the physicians properly trained to put in the device before they go into the operating room because you want the learning curve to be, you know, you want them to be up on the learning curve to the expert level already by the time they get to the operating room because many of these uh, cases that they do, especially in a phase three trial like the Archway trial, many, there's many physicians recruiting patients, which means that many of the physicians will only do one or two cases or maybe three cases. So many of the patients who are enrolled are going to be the first, second, or third cases enrolled. So if there's a steep learning curve and they're low on the learning curve and it turns out that the device doesn't work, it may be that the surgery didn't work. The device actually worked quite well, but the surgery was ineffective or, or incomplete and there were complications. So I think that this is the challenge. And I do think that virtual reality is a, is a nice way to, to supplement this. And, you know, Genentech, um, they outsourced to um, VR Magic, which is a company out of Mannheim, Germany, to develop two machines, one for the surgery, uh, the implantation of the device, and then one for the refill, because the refill of this device is not as straightforward as an intravitreal injection. And there are some learnings that I think that people would like to have before they're sitting in the clinic with a patient with a speculum in their eye and they're fumbling around. Because none of us want to fumble around in front of a patient. And so the, the virtual reality experience I found to be very realistic to uh, the in-office refill. And I think that this really gives us, you know, we can work on our positioning of our hands and things and uh, we can become comfortable with the procedure before we do it in the patient and it's great for the patient, it's great for the doctor, and of course, it's good for the study because it can eliminate you know, complications that are related to physicians learning things. So I think VR holds a lot of promise for education, for training, and it's actually being used in therapeutics as well for things like PTSD and, and, other, and other things. Well, Dr. Pirmici, or Dante, sorry, you told me not to call yeah. you Dr. Pirmici, that's your brothers, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, Dante, last thing before we let you go, and thanks so much again for your time. Um, My pleasure. A lot of our younger listeners, you know, they're out starting their practices, they may only be able to go to a meeting or two a year. Um, what's your favorite retina meeting off the top of your head? Which is the meeting you most enjoy going to? Hmm. 
There's actually a number of them. I, you know, I, I used to go a lot to Club Vit, and I'm missing it this year, which is it's in Croatia. But I like that meeting because it was a smaller meeting. Uh, there's more discussion. And I think that's true also of the Maculate Society. And, um, you know, the first I went to the first time I went to the Vit Buckle meeting, and I thought that also was a very similar to the Club Vit meeting, a smaller group of people that really like to have a good time and exchange a lot of information and, and found some unique ways uh, of presenting information instead of just didactic talks. And so I think some of these smaller meetings like Club Vid or the Vid Buckle are probably the best way to get information in the meeting and then outside the meeting as well. Perfect. Well, Dr. Piermichi, enjoy the rest of your Father's Day. Thanks again for coming on. Jay, my pleasure. And uh, I'll call you Dante from now on. <laughs> Okay, sounds great. Have a great day. You too as well. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 179 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You'll also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive Lessons from Our Pupils. Remember, you can now claim CME credits for select podcasts via the AAO website, Simply log in as an AO member, visit the link in the episode description. Remember, on our website, you can sign up for a mailing list. That will get you updates on the most recent episodes as they release. You can also subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store or Android Store directly. We do have a Facebook page, and our Twitter is at Retina Podcast. You can use this to contact us or click the contact us link on our website. I'm also open to emails directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Feedback is the lifeblood of what we do. It helps us improve and helps us do things better each time we release an episode. So anyone who subscribes, we love your positive comments and feel free to send in episode ideas. Many thanks to Dr. Paramicha for joining me. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angel Chang, and Dr. Michael Benacasa for preparing this episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.